according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 3, we are going to play playing catch up for a few minutes of this hour. This is day 74 for folks watching on YouTube or watching this at some future point of time. Day 74, uh, Deuteronomy 3, 21 through 533. Uh, However, last hour we did not cover the first 20 verses of chapter 3 as we had hoped. So I'm going to back up just a little bit as we get started and uh, tackle those first two points of the outline, and then we'll be up to speed and and moving on ahead here into chapter 3 this afternoon. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's blessing upon our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again, thankful for your grace and mercy, rejoicing in the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. It is alive and powerful. Uh, Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, today, forever. Father, what a joy for us to take this year and dedicate every single day to reading the Scriptures and living with our Savior. Father, we call upon your faithfulness now this hour. Open our eyes to the truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, this is still the first farewell discourse, which takes us from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. So we'll, uh, we'll wrap that up this hour as we move on to the second farewell discourse. But we did uh, run out of time, uh, and we didn't cover really Og and uh, the, the land grant that comes here. So let's just pick up with that. Moses is reviewing their history. He's reviewing the history of their parents from the Exodus to the failure at Kadesh Barnea for the reason why, uh, for the 40-year delay and the reason why their parents had to uh, die. And now that we've reached that point, now that the wilderness generation has now grown up, uh, they are ready for the second attempt to invade Canaan. This event does work, by the way. They do cross the Jordan River and they go in and they conquer the land for the most part. They'll leave a lot of it unconquered, and that's why we have the book of Judges, and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, Moses is giving five farewell messages, and that's what we call the book of Deuteronomy. And this first discourse started back in chapter 1, it continued through chapter 2, it's continuing now through chapter 3, it's going to keep on going into chapter 4, all right? Just a series of messages in this preliminary farewell discourse. And so it's continuing on in the first 11 verses here of chapter one, uh, 3, uh, reviewing Israel's warfare with Og, the king of Bashan. We call him Og because it's spelled O-G, but in the Hebrew you would start it with the closed throat of the Ayin consonant, and then you would pronounce it Og. And uh, I'm probably not going to do that ever again, at least this hour. Uh, I'm just going to call him Og, the king of Bashan. So as we look at it, uh, with all of his people came out to meet us in battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they're coming off of a victory, and even though Og is pretty intimidating personally, and his nation is intimidating collectively, uh, the wilderness generation has total confidence, and they, they have a tremendous victory here on this occasion. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. We captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all in the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. And we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon. So these two wars, Sihon and Og, these two wars set the table for the conquest. And it should give them tremendous encouragement and, and uh, expectation that God is with them. And, and when they're following the Lord, they can't lose. So utterly destroyed them, uh, the men, the women, the children of every city. But all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount 
Herman. And as you're tracking these things, the different Gentile nations are structured in different ways. You remember that there were five kings in the Midianites, uh, but there's only the, the two kings here of the Amorites. And they were pretty impressive kings. So we took the land at that time from the Valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. And that kind of gives you a south to north parameter for the, the Transjordan region that we're talking about uh, east of the, the Jordan River. Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, and the Amorites call it Sinir. And that's again helpful. We've talked many times that some of these mountains have multiple names depending upon the people group that calls it that, or the language that it's spoken in, or different events. And sometimes it's just simply with respect to the significance that mountain has. For example, Mount Gerizim has a tremendous significance to the Samaritan people, but it's not so relevant to the Jewish people and they have not nearly the attention focused on Mount Gerizim that the Samaritans do. So I think it's also part of the the name change between Mount Sinai and Mount Hermon, or Mount um, we were talking about here earlier why is it called by a different name called Horeb in Daniel chapter 1 when it was called uh, Sinai all through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Why, why all of a sudden are we calling it by a different name now in Moses' fifth book? Well, he has his reasons for that, and the current generation uh, uh, has the understanding of, of what Moses is dealing with there. So we shouldn't sweat it the way some, some folks do. But now we have this notice after the defeat uh, of uh, Og, the uh, Cities of the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salakah and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And then this notice, for only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. And this is where we start to realize that even though Satan was populating the land with giants during the 400 years that Israel was in bondage in Egypt, even though Satan was busy planting those giants in, in, the, in the land, those Gentile nations that were there, they were actually hostile to the, to the program, and they themselves were fighting against them. So the Ammonites fought against them and called them Emim. The, the Moabites fought against them, called them Zanzumim. Uh, they had different names for these people as they were fighting against. But Og was one of the remnants, and uh, behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, its width four cubits by the ordinary cubit. All right, that's a huge bed. That's a big bed for a big man, okay? And uh, the idea here is that these Rephaim are just like the Nephilim of uh, Genesis 6. Remember, those terms are interchangeable, that the Rephaim are the giants, as were the Nephilim that uh, these were very large in stature individuals. All right, so this is yet another Deuteronomy text that provides a glimpse of the Rephaim remnants. And uh, if if they're remnants at this point, then we understand when when David comes along, then there's a bit of a renaissance, there's a bit of a revival with Goliath and his his kinsmen there that the the Philistines were, were fostering. All right, then uh, in verses 12 through 17, uh, Moses reviews the land grant to Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. And so this is similar to what we had very recently in Numbers chapter 32. In fact, that would have been, that would have been uh, Thursday night. So uh, verses 12 through 17, we took possession of the land at that time from Aror by the valley of Arnon and half the hill country of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob. Concerning all Bashan, it is called the land of Rephaim. And I mean, it has that name, the land of the giants, the land of Rephaim. Probably because of Og and his kinsmen and the, the remnant that was there before they uh, were wiped out. Jer, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites and called it, that is, Bashan, after his own name, Havoth-Jer, as it is to this day. I'm going to comment upon that phrase, to this day. We'll have some notes on that coming up. Um, it's not talking about 2022 A.D. It's not talking about our day in, in the age in which we live in. It's talking about the day and age in which the author of this text was writing. Okay? or the editors that came after him that finished this text. If we understand that Joshua finished the text of, of Deuteronomy after Moses dies. So that extends the to this day context. 
To Machir I gave Gilead, to the Reubenites and to the Gadites I give, gave from Gilead even as far as the valley of Arnon, the middle of the valley, as a border, and as far as the river Jabbok, the borders of the sons of Ammon. Notice how valleys and rivers, these, these fixed geographical features become naturally uh, occurring boundaries between people groups, borders between nations, because it's very easy to see, here's this river, and this is my side, that's your side, stop touching me. Okay, I mean, it's just, it's a way to get the kids to play nicely together and stop fighting, um, you know, <laughs> in bed at night. All right. So uh, borders, borders are good. The Arabah also with the Jordan as a border from Kinnereth, even as far as the Sea of uh, the Arabah, the Salt Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah on the east. So Kinnereth, we talked about an Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee. Then I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. They don't get to enter into civilian life earlier than the other tribes. They actually have to go to war, and they can't settle into their civilian life until the conquest is complete. Even though Moses is permitting them to stay on the eastern side, their wives, their children, their animals are going to stay in in defended cities, but the soldiers themselves are going to go and join the greater war with all of Israel to conquer the western side of, of Jordan. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession, which I have given you. So that seems like a nice um, incentive. It's, a, it's something to look forward to. It's a goal. They've got a reason to go home to their uh, wives and children and animals and the, the, uh, the inheritance that they have on the eastern side of the Jordan. So we have the detail there and uh, the requirement that these tribes assist in the conquest of Canaan and that is very much uh, what we looked at last week in Numbers 32. All right, so now with that out of the way we can cover today's material, which is the rest of chapter uh, 3 as well as chapters 4 and 5. Moses reviews his charge to Joshua and the call to be strong in the Lord. So verses 21 and 22 here. I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them. For the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. Not only is it the regular troops, the tribes, the the hoi polloi, if you will, the population of Israel at large, they could be vulnerable to a Kadesh Barnea-type failure. They could be vulnerable to just bailing on the whole conquest idea. Not only the population, but also Joshua. How tough would it be, or how easy would it be, I guess, depending on how you're looking at it, um, for Joshua to feel unworthy or to feel uh, like, like how is he going to fill Moses' shoes? How do you follow and act like Moses? And, and, and all the things there. Well, these battles against Sihon and Og and the utter victories that were provided east of the Jordan should be a, a huge motivation for Joshua to not be fearful, to keep uh, trusting in the Lord and uh, recognizing that uh, there's a lot more kings than two when he crosses the uh, the Jordan. And then when he's going to destroy seven nations, the smallest of which is still greater and mightier than Israel, uh, then it's, it's testimony that God is at work because a human being couldn't do that. An earthly people couldn't do that. But that's exactly what, uh, you know, it's like you, how badly is Ukraine outnumbered by Russians, okay? When you look at the ratio of Ukrainians to Russians and uh, their armaments and, and all the rest, the idea that you're going up against seven nations, each one of which is greater and mightier than you, is uh, is unbelievable in, in human terms. It's just not even possible in human terms. But this is what God is doing for them. Then verses 23 to the end of the chapter, Moses confesses a request that he had made to the Lord not previously revealed that the Lord might allow him entrance into the land after all. You know, just in case God changed his mind or just in case, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, you know, well, ask Balaam that if, it's, if it doesn't hurt to ask, all right? Because he knew the will of God and he asked anyway because he wanted to curse Israel and collect the paycheck that he was after. Moses knows that God said no. 
He still wants to enter the land. He's asking if perhaps God might relent. Um, not for carnal motives, not for anything negative. Uh, he's not rebuked the way Balaam was rebuked. But still, it is, it is an interesting thing when uh, people have a hard time accepting the will of God that we didn't pray for. <laughs> you know, the will of God that we did pray for, you know, hallelujah, praise God, and, and he answers prayer and things are great. But the things we weren't asking for, when God just pops it out of nowhere and says, here you go, here's your, here's your blessing in life, and you're like, I didn't ask for that, you know, and are you sure? Can you change your mind? What's, what's happening here? So we read Moses' statement here. He says, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. And that's kind of interesting, as if the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues on Egypt, the exodus, the 40 years of wilderness wandering. I mean, and and Moses says, hey, we're just getting started here, Lord. (laughs) You know? You have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. And that's a biblical way for God to say, shut up. Quit bringing it up. Stop. Okay? My answer is not going to change no matter how many times you ask me. This actually reaches me. I mean, this, uh, this resonates so well because I think it does with any parent. If you've raised children, then you've been exposed to the idea that if you ask enough, then eventually you might break them down. Or you can even bounce back and forth between dad and mom and eventually wear one of them down if, uh, if you get the answer you don't like until you finally get the answer you like. Okay, So the parenting experience, I think, is, is familiar with that. But even worse than that is the jail experience in dealing with inmates in custody who had very similar tactics in, uh, in asking for something that I said no the day before and the day before that and the day before that. And then finally, you know, like the answer is still no, no matter how many times you ask. In fact, now it's more no than ever because you've asked so many times. And uh, different things happen there. So enough. Speak to me no more of this matter. That would be a neat phrase to just memorize in the Hebrew and then, and then recite it back uh, on those occasions. All right, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and the east and see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. As close as you're going to get is from the top of Pisgah. You can see the, all the distance that God lets you see from up there, and, uh, but you're not going into the land. Like last summer, we didn't get to go to Canada because the border was closed. And uh, COVID had the whole border shut down. And the closest we could get to it was uh, on the, the beach there in Bellingham looking across the water. And uh, we got close enough that our cell phones connected to Canadian uh, cell phone towers. And we got little text alerts on our phone, welcome to Canada and here's the rates you're going to pay when you make phone calls. And, uh, but we never did go to Canada, just our cell phones crossed the... Uh, Across the COVID boundary there. All right. So this is what Moses gets to do. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go across at the head of this people, and he will give them as an inheritance the land which you will see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Okay, so that finishes chapter 3. And it is curious, you know, when, when Moses has to stop and consider the what-ifs, what if he had not sinned? What if he had not struck the rock? What if he had stayed humble? Um, was it always the plan of God all the way along the line to make Joshua the commanding general and the conqueror? Um, we, we don't know. Uh, we, we can't know. Only God knows his, uh, his plans, including his contingency plans and so forth. But keep in mind, when God in his foreknowledge knows that Moses is going to strike the rock, then God's not just winging it, trying to come up with the next best alternative. He from eternity past knew Moses was going to strike the rock, and he eternity past knew that Joshua was going to uh, you know, lead the conquest. And uh, in that great song we sing about Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? I mean, God knew that from the foundation of the world. And so this is what we have. Okay, so we get into chapter 4. The conclusion here. This is the conclusion. Moses' first farewell discourse closes with chapter 4. 
Having reviewed the Exodus and wilderness generations past, Moses warns the present people of God to listen so that they may live. Right? Listen and live. And I like this. So reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. It's remarkable how so often, we've studied this to some extent in the book of Proverbs, but it's remarkable how the Bible speaks about living when the Bible is talking to people that are presumably living biologically, but they're not living spiritually, they're not living to the fullness as Jesus spoke about, I have come that they may have life, that they may have it in abundance. There's a lot of people that are living with bios life uh, in you know daily life or whatever. They're they they're they're alive. They eat. They they make money. They raise families, but they're not living in the fullness of what we're called to live in the will of God, in the occupied with the Word of God. And and so when you have a verse like this that highlights the the blessings of listening and living, listening to the statutes and living. I think we see the, the the parallel there for what it is and how it makes all the difference in the world when you're living in the Word of God for all the other living that you happen to do in uh, in Bios life. So, go in, take it, take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And with this exhortation comes a warning. Yes, obedience to the Word of God is essential to reaping experiential blessings in time. However, that warning comes here, we must guard against adding to God's Word or taking away from God's Word. And it comes here and it comes repeatedly throughout the Scriptures. You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't add to it, don't take away from it. We're not God's editors. We proclaim the Word of God, but we're not fellow authors. We're not editing it to our satisfaction by adding or taking away from the Word of God. And um, this comes back in chapter 12. Whatever I command you, you shall, not, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. In a lot of ways, this kind of is how humanity fell in the first place, right? Because God had said, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Eve start doing? She started adding to what God commanded. She says, we can't eat from it or touch it. And if we eat from it or touch it, you know, we're going to die. And and I think Satan found fertile ground there with which to work his lies and his temptations and so forth because Eve had added to the word that God had said, do not eat from the tree. And then God didn't say anything about touching it, uh, but that was evidently something either Eve added or I admit possibly Adam added it when he relayed the instructions to her. Maybe he taught it inaccurately. This whole warning too, by the way, serves at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, applying to the whole counsel of the Word of God. I think Israel would view this as their imperative from an Old Testament perspective, but because it gets restated this way in uh, Revelation 22, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And that's very much in keeping, when, when John's writing Revelation here, it's very much compatible with what an Old Testament prophet might write in the Old Testament, the Hebrew canon, that, that they wrote in their day. The idea of violating the law of Moses and receiving the curses that had come upon the Egyptians, for example. All the plagues of Egypt will come upon you. Well, that's what they were threatened with. The readers of Revelation will be threatened with far worse plagues than that. The plagues that are written in the book of Revelation is the uh, the threatened uh, consequence here of adding or taking away from the Word of God. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. That sounds serious. I don't want to do that. And And taking away is so much easier to do because all you have to do is just sin by omission and just avoid the passages you don't want to preach on, right? So just, you know, you can take away from the, the Bible by just ignoring those parts of the Bible, not preaching on them, not, not feeding the flock. Effectively then, at that point, you're taking away from uh, the words of Scripture. No, don't add to it, don't take away from the words of Scripture. 
Also, Moses warns them to learn from their past mistakes. <laughs> you know, God is so faithful when He's teaching us, He gives us the remedial lessons, the do-overs, again and again and again and again. <laughs> you know, and, and to the point when human beings have to stop and ask themselves, you know, how, how thick do we want to be? I mean, how, how much more of this, you know, this divine discipline do we want to heap on our own heads? How about if we learn the lesson now and move on to the next one? And so we can stop the discipline of these, of these remedial, remedial lessons that he's giving us. Because if you don't learn in Bible class and you don't learn through the te- uh, testing and you don't learn through the undeserved suffering, well then now you're going to get the divine discipline compounding all of that so you can learn even more. Why don't you just knuckle down and learn it? So verses 3 and 4 here. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. Remember that? That was the Moabite women, the Midianite women. That was the, the national fornication with the gods of, of uh, the Moabites and, and uh, the Midianites. And uh, all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. Okay, And this is where Phineas, my hero, went in there with a the spear and took care of business. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. And this is kind of neat too. I meant to look this up earlier. This, okay, Davak. Yeah, this uh, holding fast, this cleaving, this, this marital intimacy. I mean, if you're not embracing these harlots, are you embracing the Lord? There's kind of a, a word picture there. And uh, kind of neat the way he phrased that. So learn from past mistakes. Moses reminds them that he is simply the messenger relaying God's laws to them. Don't confuse the messenger with a message. Don't confuse even, even a great one, even a, a mighty prophet like Moses is just a man. He's just a sinner saved by grace and, and he doesn't get the blessings that you guys are about to get. The, the wilderness generation gets to enter into the land and Moses doesn't get those blessings. So he says in verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So he's relaying a message. He didn't make it up. It's not coming from him as an original source. But as the Lord God commands me, that's what I'm teaching you. Statutes and commandments. So keep them and do them. For that is your wisdom. And your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. You know, if they lived up to every expectation God had for them, they would be unbelievable. The, the Gentile nations will look at them and just say, wow, look at this people. They're a holy people. They're a God-fearing people. They're diligent in their studies. They're humble before Him. They are quick to serve. And, and all of the, the marvelous things that they could have been and very seldom did they rise to that uh, in, their, in their Old Testament history. Very rarely. And uh, it's, it's almost you know, quite miraculous to consider that those days are still in front of them when they get to the millennial kingdom because in the thousand year reign of Christ they will be the faithful nation. While uh, Gog and Magog is marching in opposition at the end, Israel is the nation that stays faithful. That just boggles my mind when uh, certainly compared to Old Testament Israel. So again, Gentiles will be looking at you going, wow, Surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? And I think the impact of this message goes far beyond the original recipients and far beyond this initial setting, but it sets forth a concept that should have echoed centuries later. What nation is there like this nation? That's a rhetorical question. And the answer is nobody. Nobody, nowhere, no how. There is no other nation like the Jewish nation. That you can look at all the Gentile divisions of humanity all you want. You will never find a covenant people that are, that are uh, living in the midst of the holiness of their righteous God and walking in the light of His commandments, walking in the light of His revealed word. There is no Gentile people like that anywhere. And so rather than drawing comparisons and trying to uh, say, oh, you know, why are we different? We should be like those other nations. You're missing the point. 
we should not be like those other nations, you know, grumbling about, um, you know, well, we don't have a king. All these other nations have kings. We want a king like the nations. Well, what are you talking about? You have the Lord God living among you. And, uh, and yet, we understand what happens. They're going to get a king. They're going to get what they ask for, and that's, that's unfortunate also. We have other things too. Um, some of the criticism against America very frequently comes by folks who say, well, America is the only country in the world, blah, blah, blah. We're the only country in the world that doesn't have uh, universal you know, education or universal health care. We're the only country in the world that doesn't blah, 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 blah. To which my question is, so what? <laughs> I don't care. You know, if in fact we are the only nation, which I doubt, but if in fact we are, okay. Maybe it's because we don't want it. Maybe it's because we don't need it. Maybe it's because, I mean, what is it? If we are different, praise God that we're different. You know what else we are? We're the only nation with a Bill of Rights, with a Second Amendment. We're the only nation with the freedom to, to start a Bible church or to preach to a flock, you know, without the government saying, okay, you can do that. I mean, there's a lot of things that make us different. So stop me now, I'm on a soapbox. Verses 6 through 8, I think there's a lot more there. What nation is there? The answer is none, and that's a good thing. So praise God for that. Yes, Moses reminds them that they are a peculiar people, different and separate from the nations around them. So don't grumble if there's something that that we're doing that they're not or they're doing and we're not. Just understand we're different. Moses reminds them that they are accountable to teach the Word of God to their children. And this is the thing. I mean, they should know this already because of what happened to their parents. All right? But every generation has to stand accountable before the Lord and train the next generation because we're only one generation away. Okay? Ronald Reagan made a very famous speech on that. Freedom is only one generation away. So Moses says here, give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. The impact you can have to one or two generations or more. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. A lot of these guys weren't there. That was 40 years ago. Anybody that's under 40 wasn't there. But For the crowd that's between 40 and 60, they were there and they can remember and tell the rest. When the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on earth, that they may teach their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. And as terrifying as that would have been, They should have stood there and thanked God that they were the nation that was standing there. The Egyptians weren't standing there. The Greeks weren't standing there. The Romans weren't standing there. It was the Jewish people standing there to see the terror of the Lord descend upon the mountain. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Remember that? So he's reminding them that they are accountable to teach the Word of God to their children. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you're going over to possess it. And 40 years later, they're still on the verge of doing that. Moses reminds them how serious the issue of idolatry is, verses 15 through 24. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. You heard the voice, but you saw no form. God doesn't have a form. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So when you craft an idol, when you craft, you take gold and shape it into a a calf, a cow, you're giving shape and you're insulting the God who has no shape, who has no form, the God who created all things. It's this warning against idolatry. You do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, or the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. 
Notice how many times the word likeness, 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 likeness. The element behind, the, behind God's prohibition against idolatry is the principle of likeness. Trying to fashion an artificial likeness of God is blasphemy because we are in the image and likeness of God. Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. We should be serving the living God in this way, not fashioning an external likeness. Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Again, the nations are structured according to the sons of God and the, uh, the principalities and powers of the heavenly realm. They're observing the nations, but Israel belongs to the Lord, not to any of these angels. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the, from the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as it is today. Now again, we have the term possession many, many times throughout this book. They're about to take the land as a possession, but they themselves are God's possession. I like the, uh, I like the tandem on that. Again, the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. By the way, we saw that language in our Hebrews study, applying to the church. Our God is a jealous God. He is a consuming Father. All right. Verses 25 through 31, Moses prophesies of Israel's future idolatry, exile, and restoration. Now, he just got through telling them, don't practice idolatry. Warning them, don't make idols, don't practice idolatry. And then the next message in his discourse, when you do practice idolatry, here's, uh, here's the judgment you're going to fall under. So, when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. You will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over, the Jordan, to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. So these are the temporal consequences that they face for their idolatry. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Do you know what the percentage is of Jewish people on planet Earth today? You know, 7 billion people on this planet today and and how many Jewish people in the world today? It's a tiny, tiny little percentage. All right. And off the top of my head now I'm struggling to remember. (laughs) I I shouldn't use those things if I don't have the numbers ready to throw out there. All right. This is where a producer can whisper in my ear and give me the statistics from... Oh, we're not that kind of church? All right, never mind. I will tell you, though, my hearing aids are Bluetooth connected to my cell phone, so someone could be on the phone with me right now feeding me every, every little hint that I need to keep myself out of trouble. All right, so here's a prophecy of their idolatry, their exile, their restoration. You will be scattered among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. So the judgment in the sense of idolatry is actually more idolatry in the lands of their dispersions. But from there... You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Remember, he wants to be found if you're humble, if you're repentant, if you're seeking him. And the blessings for Israel is they can be seeking him all over the world and he will be drawing them to himself and someday he's going to bring all the Jewish people home to the promised land. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. 
There's a promise of restoration in the latter days. And this is, you know, this is still valid. This is, even though they crucified their Christ, this is still a promise. This is still a prophecy. And it is going to happen. Only now they have to look to the Christ that they crucified to return a second time and to save them. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. He said, I will. The unconditional covenant language from God to Abraham, he cannot break that or he violates his own nature. So no matter how wicked Israel ever becomes, God has his unconditional covenant promises to Abraham that he has to fulfill. All right, verses 32 through 40. Moses concludes his first discourse. That is all the series of messages from chapters 1 through 4. He concludes this first discourse by reminding Israel how unique they are in God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages. Similar to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. They are unique. There is no nation like them. Either now or ever. Indeed, verse 32, ask now concerning the former days which were before you. And that kind of a interesting statement to make given that all their parents are dead, their grandparents are dead, the, the generations that have come before, they're dead. The oldest man in the, in the country right now, well, you got Caleb and Joshua, but, but you know, everybody else uh, is, is at the most 60 years old, okay? Because they were under 20 at uh, the Kadesh Barnea betrayal. So considering the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, so in the scope of everything from Adam till now, and it's a great message coming from Moses, the author of Genesis, from Adam till now, okay, in the scope of everything as revealed in the, the complete canon of Scripture at this point is the writings of Moses. Inquire from one end of heaven to the other, has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? You know, that at Sinai event, they were terrified. But that was a blessing for them. Should they have embraced it? Yes. They would have been humble and reverent and fearful and recognized that this is, uh, this is unique. No nation has ever heard the the voice of God like this coming from the fire and survived? <laughs> or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? There's nothing like the Exodus event in human history. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, there is no other besides Him. It's Yahweh. Yahweh is the Elohim, the God of Israel. There are lots of Elohim in this world, but there's only one Yahweh. Out of the heavens He let you hear His voice to discipline you, and on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words from the midst of the fire. This is just a tremendous privilege and blessing that we have here. It gets down through verse 40. Verse 37 says, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. He didn't just love Abraham, he called, he promised Abraham and his seed. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God, Elohim in heaven above and on earth below, so there is no other. You shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving to you for all time. So they have a position possession, they have an estate, they have eternal promises, and then beyond the eternal promises is the experiential enjoyment of those promises should they live in sin and live in defilement and live in idolatry and ignore the law? It doesn't change the promises, but it does adjust their capacity to enjoy the promises that God has given them. Does that make sense? I mean, Israel as a nation is very much like us in our personal Christian walk. 
in the sense that we have positional truth, sanctification, we're saved, we're eternally justified, we're going to go to heaven when we die, eternal security, we can never lose that. However, should we start walking in darkness and acting like a pagan, then we're going to have temporal life consequences of judgment, discipline. Uh, The hand of God is going to come heavy upon us because He treats us as sons, He disciplines us for our blessing. All right, then the uh, last little bit of the chapter here, between discourse number one and two, Moses designates the three Transjordan cities of refuge. So we have a bit of an interlude here before we get into chapter five, before we start the second of the farewell messages. Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east that a manslayer might flee there who unintentionally slew his neighbor. We talked about that this morning. The Levitical cities, 48 Levitical cities, out of those six of those 48 Levitical cities are also going to be cities of refuge. And uh, now we're getting the first three of these uh, stipulated. So uh, you have Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites and Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So there you go. There's the three on the east side of the Jordan. This is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which um, Moses spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt. Across the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came up out of Egypt. They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who are across the Jordan to the east from Aurora, which is on the mountain of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Sion, that is Hermon, with all the Arabah across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Now why are these verses here? And what is important about this? This is the law. These are the testimonies. And as if Moses finishes this discourse... Uh, is he now at this point saying, okay, Lord, I'm ready to go? And the Lord says, not so fast. There's more to preach. But this almost looks like the conclusion of a book, almost looks like the closing of a, of a written form, and that's really what it is. It's the closing of his first discourse. But he's not done yet. There's more to preach, and that's what gets us now into chapter 5. And we're going to get down through, yes, we're going to cover chapter 5. Because today's reading is Deuteronomy 3.21 to 5.33. All right. And 5.33 is the end of the chapter. So that's all of chapter 5. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 5. What's the first thing you think of when you think of Deuteronomy chapter 5? Ten Commandments. It's like Exodus chapter 20. Okay? I mean, these, these should just be the, the chapter titles that just come to your mind the more that you dwell on them. Yeah, Ralph did something different with his Deuteronomy chapter titles there. All right. So, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. You've got the Ten Commandments in two places in the Old Testament. This is now the second time we've, we've hit this. So... Um, Moses' second farewell discourse is a review of Mount Horeb, that is what we used to call Mount Sinai, and the Ten Commandments that they received there. So Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 21, very parallel to Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the the Ten Commandments that was presented in the book of Exodus. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. That's that's an amazing statement. You know how profound that is. Because in a sense, it's, it's false. It's not true. He did make the covenant with their fathers, but they're dead now. Okay, They're gone. He made that covenant with each generation. He made that covenant with all Israel. In fact, they're going to remain in this covenant until Jesus Christ comes and fulfills the covenant. It's presently obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. Uh, It will be replaced by the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's kind of a curious 
rhetorical statement to make that he wasn't making it with your fathers, or we might say not only with your fathers, not just with your fathers. It's not only those old people in that generation who literally stood at the foot of that mountain, but you guys, many of which weren't even born but 40 years ago. But this covenant stands today with you, with us, all those of us alive here today. And the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire, while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. All right. So again, we read this and then we look back to Exodus and we read that and both accounts are true, but we don't, we don't say this is true and that was false or that was true and this is false. Both accounts are true. We harmonize the truth in, in every context as we encounter it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. How frequently are those words given in the Old Testament? This is the I am, the eternal I am, and he could just stop right there as I am, but then he says, Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Because the minute you pick a different god, the minute you pick Baal, or you pick uh, whatever, Molech, or you pick Dagon, or any of those gods of the of the Philistines, or or whoever, the minute you pick a different God besides Yahweh, you have picked somebody besides the I Am. And you have picked somebody that did not bring you out of the land of Egypt. Did not call you as a nation to Himself. So you shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath. Physical likenesses cannot represent the I Am that is your God beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, that's the thousandth generation, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So these ten commandments, just like we had in Exodus, we have them restated here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished who takes his name in vain. And the abuse of God's name, this is more than just profanity, this is more than just cursing. This is the abuse of naming the name of God and living like a pagan. Let he who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. We understand that. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. This is everybody, right? The entire nation, whether you're a Jewish or Gentile, an alien, a sojourner, whatever it is, a slave, an animal, this is everybody in the land under Israel's sovereignty should be following this law and, uh, and resting on the Sabbath day. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. I think there's value in that. Remember where you came from. Remember what he saved you out of. Remember, I mean, I mean, remember your life as an unbeliever and how the grace of God laid hold of you and, and provided for you eternal life. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. This is a marvelous promise. It's the first commandment with a promise. And it's a recognition that yes, we all have our X number of days, but you know what? We also have our Y number of days. These variables that we have, the X number of days, we don't know what they are. God determined them. He wrote them in his book. They're, they're determined the, the day of our birth, the day of our death. And by being anxious, we can't lengthen it one cubit. But by honoring our father and mother, we can lengthen it. God lengthens it. God rewards that. And so your days may be prolonged. 
And so God may then determine that, that you have your X number of days and then you have your Y number of days as He prolongs it in His grace. You, he also has a Z number of days in His omniscience where He knows that He cuts your day short through the sin and the death or through the divine discipline procedures there. The sovereignty of God in numbering our days is more than just a single number. It includes contingencies for the, the grace extensions and for the divine discipline um, shortages. You shall not murder. Short and sweet, any questions? <laughs> Actually we do. We've already seen there's a difference between manslaughter and murder. We're also going to see uh, that um, in battlefield conditions, in, in warfare, that's not murder. In the, uh, and not only with the men that you're face to face with in, in the armed conflict, but also with the, the women and the children that you are executing at the conclusion of the armed conflict. That's not murder in the national outworking of God's program. You shall not commit adultery. That, that's the one that's, that's, it's not fornication, it's adultery specifically. That's the one that has the death penalty. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. So there's your Ten Commandments. Then in verses 32 through 33, Moses reviews the fear of Israel and their desire for a mediator between them and the holiness of God. And I've commented upon this several times ever since chapter 19. And, and now God himself is commenting upon it as he's reviewing this for the next generation. This, this terror that they had. Let's look at this. I think there's some principles here that I find... Yeah, find these interesting. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. You know, when you're hearing the audible voice of God, what does that sound like? Have you ever considered the the, the tone of voice, the the... I mean, I don't, I don't envision that he sang soprano. I don't I always envision this deep, booming, manly, kind of intimidating bass. I mean, I just, is it, am I the only one? And it just seems to me if he's kind of squeaky and high-pitched and whatever, that would be not so intimidating. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. All right. But I do know when Hollywood casts it, they always get the, the James Earl Jones kind of, the you know, the... Anyway, I don't think it's just me. With a great voice, he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. Wait, it says who? What are you worried about? He, you're where he told you to be. Quit sweating it. But they're convinced we're going to die. This great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. And it's like they're saying, stop, no more. When already what they've heard and the testimony that they're still alive should alert them to the fact that Israel is pretty awesome, that God in His grace is calling this people, this stiff-necked people, to be His people, and they shouldn't tremble at this. In other words, they've got the wrong kind of fear. Who is there of all flesh? And, and, and a rhetorical question, but they're missing the point when they try to engage in this kind of logic. Who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? The answer is nobody because you're the only people God has ever spoken to like this. And then the people want Moses to be a mediator. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says and speak to us that the Lord our God speaks to you and then and we will hear and we will do it. In other words, go, be a mediator. Stand in between us. So the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people. Uh, they have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that I may be well with them and their sons forever. But that's not the heart they currently have. 
And so it's kind of a curious thing. I'm going to have to close with this, but Israel's national fear, that is their terror, would have been better as a national reverence. And that, oh, if they would fear me, is actually a prophecy because that's what's going to happen in the second advent. They are going to fear the Lord and they're going to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. They're going to call upon Him whom they pierced. But in the Exodus generation, it just wasn't there. When the Lord condescended to the Exodus generation's fear, He looked forward to the day when He would give all Israel a heart to fear Him. In other words, I will create in them a clean heart. And He makes them that, gives them that clean heart at the second advent when He institutes the new covenant. Thus the Lord's eternal purpose is to make Israel a kingdom of priests. You know, he said that in chapter 19, that that promise is not thwarted, it's just delayed. Delayed in a, in a patient outworking of His glory. A similar eternal purpose could be studied regarding the eternal purpose for sinless humanity being fruitful and multiplied. God told sinless Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and they never did. They were sinners before they multiplied. Well, that purpose is not thwarted either. It's simply delayed in the patient outworking of His glory the thousand generations of the fullness of times. Okay, well, we went a little long, went a little bit late, but we got through it. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for this time together. We give You the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.